This is the Seven Figures Podcast Smart Money Strategies for Women with Sandy Waters. Seven Figures is sponsored by Family First Credit Union. When it comes to financial education, earning and learning go hand in hand. And Family First is here to help you and the greater Rochester community with both. All right. Well, thank you again for joining us this week, spending time with us on the Seven Figures podcast. Today, we are going to uncover all the tricks to buying and selling a home, getting the price you want, right? And James Sowers and Susan Hughes, both uh, licensed real estate agents for Howard Hanna. Susan, also the president of the Women's Council of Realtors. Are you ready to tell us your secrets? <laughs> Absolutely. We are. <laughs> This is going to be good because I know you guys are going to be honest with us and candid and help us out. First, let's start with how long you guys have both been in the business. So um, I have been licensed since 2002 and I've been working for um, a couple of years more active in the marketplace. Didn't you say when you were younger, though, this is how you made your money? It is. Real estate? Yeah, this is actually how I did a significant part of my college um, when I was 18 years old. I've been working as a full-time realtor for 25 years. And it pays for my plastic surgery. (laughs) (laughs) Are are we in uh, a buyer's market now or a seller's market? We are swinging back to a balanced market. Oh, a balanced market. Yes. How about that? Yeah. Okay. And now how does Rochester fare compared to other markets? It's been my experience that Rochester is a very stable market, um, maybe a two to 3% swing in um, price, Um, like for instance, during like a recession time period when the housing market was going through a struggle, it was really only like a 2 to 3% loss here for sellers. Um, and then when the market's really, really hot, um, I would say average 2 to 3%, but I think that potentially this year, Susan, maybe we saw a little bit more creep above that 3%, um, this like in the spring market when it was really hot. That's correct. We tell our clients that we don't climb the mountain, but we don't fall off the cliff either. Which is good? It is very good. And I have stayed in my current house since 1993, and when I look at what I'm going to sell it for, I will have $100,000 of equity. So it is still a good, solid investment toward retirement. Okay. All right. And now you said that we're we're hitting that point where we're more of a balanced market. What gets us to that point? What, what all of a sudden makes that shift happen? I think it's because we've been in a seller's market for two years where there's been very low inventory. And we're seeing more people sort of hop on the market. Summer's over. Um, interest rates are probably as low as they're going to be for the coming future. Ah. They're still around 5%. Okay. We anticipate the Fed will do two increases in the next year, which will dramatically impact some people's affordability. Okay. So having more on the market is what creates a balanced market. When you have three or more months of inventory, you then are swinging back to a balanced market. Okay. Now... Be honest with us. What side of Rochester is more appealing? What side tends to be easier to sell a home, James? Great question, Sandy. Um, so <laughs> I feel like I, I'm on Jeopardy. Great <laughs> question. <laughs> it is a great question. I would say this. Um, I think this year has been very, um, very different. However, I don't think that we've seen a true um, kind of movement away from the traditional um, a lot of times, um, there's no question there are certain towns that are the hot spots. For instance, yeah. Brighton has always been a hot spot, and it still is a hot spot. Um, Pittsford, of course. Um, but I will say that you're starting to see homes move very quick in towns like Gates and Greece, especially within a certain price range, like between the 
130 and 160 to 200 mark. Um, those homes are moving very fast and and still are moving very fast. It's you know all about price. Um, I think again, great, yep. you get more house and a little bit more value on the west side than you typically do on the east side. So that attracts some people in that price range, particularly to those homes, because maybe they get a little few more features than you would on the east side for the same price. Okay. Now, why is Brighton in Pittsburgh so much more appealing? What makes them, because they have always typically been mm-hmm. the hot places to to buy a home, yes? or They have. I mean, buyers that I've worked with and sellers that I've worked with um, in, in Brighton specifically, um, they all talk about the, they like the close-knit neighborhoods, you know, the sidewalks, the parks within the neighborhoods, um, obviously the schools, the proximity to 12 Corners or a downtown. Um, with the exception of maybe Spencerport and Brockport on the west side, there's not really a downtown village setting uh, that's true. Um, yeah. that the east okay. side towns can can provide. Um, Fairport's another example. They've got that village setting. Even Penfield's got a beautiful downtown, and that's a mm-hmm. hot town as well. So... You know, you look at that, and and that's where people, they like that, the proximity, not to mention the proximity to the highways to get to work, um, even if they work in Henrietta or they might work in Linden Oaks. You know, it's it's right there. Um, whereas um, I'm sure you know, Sandy, sometimes on the west side, 390 is not always our friend during the yeah. construction process. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's, there's definitely features that the west side has unique. Um, for instance, if you've got a buyer um, looking for like an in-law, on the home, um, you're more apt to find that on the west side. Um, oh. My neighborhood, uh, it's like really like every other three homes has an in-law apartment. Um, you know, on the but I, I do think I agree with what Susan said, which is that homes on the west side definitely have more features for the price. It's more value okay. um, sometimes. Um, but, um, you know, I think the same home exists in, on both sides. It's just a matter of features and it's a matter of, of location, location, location in real estate. Now let's start talking about putting our house on the market. So we feel like it's time. We look around our house and sometimes when you live in a house for so many years, you don't even see things anymore. You don't or smell s- things. <laughs> or smell things. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you become nose blind. <laughs> you, well, yeah, you do. <laughs> what areas of the house should we invest our money? Because you have to spruce it up and get it ready for the market. Where, if you were to help us prioritize our budget, where where would you start? Could I just start with statistics? Of course. Because I pulled those? Of course. So Susan, by the way, loves statistics. Okay. I do for a person who's not numbers driven, but I love research. <laughs> so most sellers that we talk to are like, oh, I don't want to do this update because the next person can really take care of that and we'll give a credit or whatever. So I did a little research on the top remodeling projects and their return on investment. Okay. And it was interesting because roofing replacement which we hear a lot of sellers say that exact comment about, returns them 68.40% on the dollar. But roof, to replace your roof is so expensive. That's probably why sellers don't even want to tackle right. that project, right? Mm-hmm. And the other big one is a major kitchen remodel, even in the mid-range, returns them 59.0%. So the point really is, if you're going to, don't wait until you're selling your house to replace that roof. Oh. Don't wait until you're selling your house to do the kitchen remodel. Do it, enjoy it, knowing you're going to have a cost of enjoyment, Absolutely. but then you're going to have a big return on the other end. Enjoyment equity is what I call it. Very good term. Yeah. This might be a little too specific here, maybe um, overanalyzing the details, but when you're looking to replace your roof, you either have the option of 
tearing off all the roofing shingles and putting on the new roof or putting the new roofing shingles on top of the old ones. Does that make a difference? That's a good question. I would say um, from my experience, we've had, um, and Susan, I'm sure, has come across re-roofs and tear-off roofs on, on listings. Um, I always really leave that in in my potential buyer's hands, um, in the home inspector's hands, and kind of look at the quality of the job that was done. Um, you know, with the tear-off, of course, that's a very attractive term to say to somebody. We know that it's been done, but sometimes homes really don't need a complete tear-off. Sometimes okay. they really genuinely just need a re-roof. Um, although I would I would say this, the general feeling is that after one re-roof, um, that's kind of your limit. Um, and then you would need to do a tear-off at that point. But they last just as long, I mean, 20 years, 15 to 20 years on a re-roof. Tear-offs, um, 25 to 30 if you get a good shingle. I okay. find that it depends how long those people anticipate living there. So if they're thinking, maybe I'm going to do three or four years and I'm going to move away again, maybe I'm relocating for my job then, yeah, they don't care which kind of roof you really put on. If they're thinking of longevity, that's going to be their last home. They care, of course, more if it's a tear-off, especially if that tear-off comes with some type of warranty. Let's move to the kitchen because you said that was another area of the home that will give you that ROI. Change out the kitchen cabinets, paint the kitchen cabinets. What would you suggest? What is more appealing? Well, in my own house, I had a budget to work with. So I just had my kitchen cabinetry painted. And that was an affordable thing for me to do. But in terms of statistics, they say doing a total upgrade will get you a little bit more because people definitely can see if a cabinet is painted versus replaced. The whole door function is different with inside hinges. They do flush close now, so you see no bar in between. Mm -hmm. Um, It's pretty evident, but mine were not worn at all, so they're going to see the age. Um, I found out doing my own research that quartzite counters when I put them in were about half the cost I expected. So at the end of the day, I was like, well, okay, that was pretty good. And now I'm, I'm feeling like it's beautiful. It completely updated the house. So while they say, you know, a complete kitchen renovation will, of course, get you a little bit more, I think you have to work within your budget and see where you're comfortable. Absolutely. And it's also looking at the market in the neighborhood that your home is sitting in, too. I tell sellers, you know, you don't want to, quote, overbuild for the neighborhood. For instance, if you're living in a neighborhood of $175,000 homes, you don't necessarily want to um, install a $35,000 kitchen um, because you know that's going to take you outside of the market. You're not really going to get an ROI. Yes, you'll have that enjoyment equity, of course. It's a luxury mm-hmm. kitchen. Um, however, you're overbuilding for the neighborhood. And if you really foresee kind of that move in the next one to three years, you're really overbuilding at that point and potentially losing money on that investment. So if you are toying with the idea, should I invest in my house, do major renovations that will put my house, uh, it will be the most valuable house in the neighborhood. It will outprice all the others or just move. What would you suggest? That is a good question. I would question. probably say move. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. In, in researching a little bit for this, I found that there, 35% of U.S. homeowners would rather move to another home than remodel theirs. It's an undertaking. It's another job. Yeah. And I know because I've just been through it that in order to get my cabinetry painted, I had to empty everything out of it and pack it up and put it in my basement. We still haven't found everything that's in there. <laughs> <laughs> but when you look at people and you say, you know, this is an HGTV generation that wants everything done for mm-hmm. them, that's one of the reasons. When you've got two working people and their jobs are very demanding and maybe they also travel. This is a whole nother job to get estimates and contractors and all of the selections made that you want to make to do 
changes. Yeah. It's for you, your, it's your day job. Plus, on top of it, now you're a general contractor and project manager on top of that. Yeah, and that's that's, that's another job. You're right, Susan. What is the biggest mistake people make when they want to put their house up on the market? I can say from my experience, and then Susan, share yours. From my experience, has been the resistance sometimes to um, declutter and depersonalize um, at times. I'm not saying make it look like a model home, like nobody lives there. Um, but you have to make concessions for the market. And sometimes, um, you know, while I love decorations myself, um, it's good to declutter. Um, and it's good. The other thing I will say, I think this goes a long way, is really spend maybe $200, $250 to, to Susan's point earlier about being nose blind and smells and, and pay for a, like a professional cleaning. If you're going to really get that home ready, wow. have a professional cleaner come in. And those are the two, the two big things for me is about presentation and it, you only have one time to really kind of open that door to the market. And beyond that debut to the market, everybody sees it when it comes on. So you want to make sure it's decluttered, it's in show condition, and it's clean um, of obviously clutter, dust, and smells. My favorite phrase is nothing sells like clean. People are very picky and they notice a lot of things that the homeowner might notice. And for the $200 also, you got any place that needs fresh paint? Gosh, you know, a coat of paint goes a long way toward making a house look spiffy. And then I always go through and I try to find the detail because people do notice detail, whether they notice it consciously or not. Subconsciously, they're taking it all in. So there's little chips that always happen on doorways is because they're high traffic areas. Yeah. Caulk it, paint it. It will look a hundred times better. Or the base molding. The base, both of those things. I mean, people tend not to, to see where the chips in the boot marks are, Mm -hmm. but that really makes a huge difference. Um, So I would say that is true. I think they need to take that few minutes to really assess the property, look at what minor things they can do to make it look so much more presentable and appealing to that market. How about the exterior? I'm happy. I was actually going to bring something up with the exterior, and it's not really a fun project um, to take on. However, it's definitely worth the $80 to $100 if you hire somebody or just a Saturday of sweat equity. Um, But when I take buyers out, no matter the price range, and they happen to see maybe a piece of greenery growing out of um, the gutter, um, it actually um, is kind of a subconscious thing to a buyer, and they do remember that. So clean your gutters. Um, While it's not a very expensive undertaking, and also to go to Susan's point about the interior, the exterior um, you know, if you've got this beautiful exterior on your home, um, you know, maybe touch up your gutters. You know, gutters are white. They stand out no matter what your type of siding you have. And the reason I talk, I actually talk about this from personal experience because I just had my exterior painted. And as I'm looking at it and I thought, wow, those front gutters don't look very good. <laughs> so I had to have those retouched. And now they really do look good. I thought, why, why even repaint the exterior if I'm going to have the, the gutters look like they do? So that's a big thing. And then also making sure, especially even if the home is vacant while you're moving, make sure the grass is kept up mode. Mm-hmm. Um, the weeds, it's weed whacked. Everything is trimmed and that you still maintain the property. Um, grass, even when it gets a little long for a home that's on the market, just does not look um, appealing. Again, you have one first impression as a as an agent and their buyers pull up to the home or even on Saturdays and Sundays when people are driving around looking. Would you ever rip out bushes, major landscape renovations, or just trim them where the bushes look neat, even though it might be not the best landscaping, uh, you know, situation? 
1950 bushes probably need to go. It's dated. They've usually taken over part of the house. They also have to be cognizant that people are going to walk up their front sidewalk. Most people come in their house through the garages. They forget that if there are bushes encumbering that front sidewalk, people are going to be like batting their way through to get to the front door. And I want to talk a little bit about the front door when we talk about exterior. Make sure it's freshly painted. I'm, uh, I have a thing about putting a wreath on the front door, and James knows this. It's, I have, like, client wreaths for different <laughs> seasons of the year. Because In the basement if, with all yes, your kitchen stuff? With, with all my, yeah. It's yeah. <laughs> a true. I can find the wreath, so. <laughs> Every listing Susan and I have done together ends up with a, ru- or a wreath on the front door. <laughs> you think about that classic American picture in your mind uh, yeah. of curb appeal. And it's that beautifully painted front door, neatly landscaped with a wreath. It's a welcome. So I always look at that. And I wanted to mention one thing about the interior, because when people are hesitant about putting things away, Mm -hmm. I bring the safety aspect into it because we are not police officers. So if there are showings with other agents or there's an open house, I'm not following people around. They can pick up that Hummel or that piece of Waterford that you treasure and walk away with it in their pockets. We could also talk about prescription drugs, but that's part of the same scenario for safety. So I try to approach it from that. Please, if you have valuables, things that really mean something to you, put them in that Rubbermaid tote right now and put them in the basement because people aren't going to dig through that. If it's left on a table, you don't know. Before we get to the other side of things, uh, buying a home, how we, uh, you mentioned basement. Does that increase the value of your home by a lot? I don't think it hurts by any stretch to have a finished basement or have a bonus room of some sort within the basement or over the garage. People like that. Um, there's, this, there's been this concept over the past um, maybe 10 years of like the, um, you know, the, I hear somebody said the woman's workroom or quilting room or the man cave. Um, people like that, and like Susan's point earlier, in today's market, people like move in truly turnkey, move mm. in, do nothing. Um, so if they have that already and they don't need to renovate a basement or finish a basement, which can be an expensive undertaking to do it right, um, it, it I, I would say it does add value. It has added value to my buyers where we've offered a little bit more and been more competitive um, you know, just because of the, they really like that basement. They want that uh, living space because okay. think about it as additional living space for yeah. the family. Um, that being said, um, it doesn't hurt it, um, but I don't think that it, um, it doesn't nearly have the ROI that, um, you know, like a kitchen or a bathroom would have, but okay. it doesn't hurt the sale. Well, adding living space then, should we keep up, uh, keep the Italian garageio? Oh, wait, let me get back to basement for a minute. <laughs> keep the screen. And if you uh, live on the West side, that, you know that what? Sense and that's you. precisely what it is. When, when I look at the basement as well as the Italian garage, I look at what's in the neighborhood. What do the comps have? And if that is consistent with the neighborhood, for goodness sakes, keep it because oh. that's part of that culture of that community. Oh, with okay. the basement in, in other neighborhoods, I looked, did the houses sell quicker because they had some finished space in the basement? Now, if you're not going to get a certificate of compliance, what I tell people is don't spend a lot of money. Go put you know a carpet down there, paint your block, or make sure that your insulation is neat and tidy. Don't spend a lot of money. Just make it like a rec space. Now, I want to help people who are in the market for a house. What advice we can give them? What tricks 
to getting the house down to the price that they want to pay. But first, I want to say thank you to our friends at Family First Credit Union for supporting conversations like this one from personal banking to business services and home loans. Their number one priority is finding a solution that works for you locally. We're here with Susan Hughes and James uh, Sowers from Howard Hanna. Okay, now let's uncover the tricks to buying a home, how to get that price that we really want to pay. What are the big mistakes typically people make when they're looking for a home? What advice can you give us? They don't listen to their realtor. (laughs) (laughs) The first thing, when (laughs) when we're in a seller's market, it is how, and you're getting competing offers, how much are you comfortable paying? What do you think this house is worth? Because it is now in the eyes of the buyer. It is not by comps anymore. When we're traditionally in a balanced or a buyer's market, we're looking at comparables and we're seeing what others have sold for. When you're in a seller's market where there's very low inventory, low choices, we literally say we've shown you X amount of houses. The value is in your eyes. If you lose this house for a dollar more than this value, are you okay with going on and looking at others? Yeah, teach us this dance, the dance of making an offer and a counter offer. Do you get a counteroffer in a seller's market? You do not get a counteroffer. You have one shot to go in there. And we use something called an escalation clause, which often says, I am willing to pay $500 above the next closest offer up to a maximum of blank. And they need to send us the corroborating other offer to say that you had a legitimate other offer. We're going 500 over. You have to have the pre-approval revised to indicate that they can qualify for that amount over. And you only have that one shot. So there have been properties with 25, 30 offers coming in on them. There's no counter. There's one chance to get that house. Agreed. Do they ever lie and say, oh, yeah, there's 20 offers, but there really isn't? That's why you have to have the corroborating offer that Ah. you're $500 over. And we never know the exact number. But, I mean, some agents post it on Facebook and they have the offers laid out on the table. So that's sort of a verification. Okay. Yeah. And then when you when we do hit that level of a balanced market, then can we start negotiating? Okay. I'm, I'm going to let James answer this in a second, but I do the rule of threes. Okay. Don't come in too low. Don't go back and forth too much. Come in reasonable. And then let's try and tie this together and come to an agreement in three back and forth. No more because then people get angry. So I never think that they should come in with too low an amount to start. It, it starts things off on the wrong foot. I agree with Susan's rule of three <laughs> on that. I really do. I, I think it's, you know, I, and I, Susan will tell you, I always look at things um, really a little bit more from a business standpoint, even as I advise buyers. And that's really our, our role is, we're not supposed to, supposed to be emotionally invested into the home. Um, but, of course, we want our buyer to, to get their home if that's really what they like. Um, I try to be very fair. There's times where buyers sometimes will want to negotiate some things, and I'll say that it's not something that you would negotiate at this point, even in a balanced market, because you don't want to insult the seller. Like Susan said, don't come in too low and, and really don't overvalue um, things that you might see throughout the home that are not perfect to you. Um, then that tends to happen in real estate where well, people will overvalue something like a chip on the wall or something. They'll say, well, we want, you know, instead of 140, let's offer 135. Well, that okay. chip on the wall was really not worth $5,000. I was so, going to ask you for example. Yeah, so, so what is, what is um, too low 
Is there a, a can you put an average dollar amount? Well, I think we do our homework. We mm-hmm. we don't come in and just say, oh, that's too low. We come in and we say, well, based on the comparables, usually I, I back end it a little bit because I come where I want us to meet as this is where the price should be. You can come in a little bit lower than maybe $5,000 oh, lower. 5, okay. And then we're going to come to an agreement and this is where I want you to max out. So the window of movement here is around the $5,000 mark over under... I think I think it, it generally speaking it could be I think it's all dependent on the price range that the okay. home is sitting into because at, at that point then you start to get into percentages um, like when in Rochester when you start to get into like the five hundred thousand dollar plus um, sometimes you'll see a, a home listed for six forty nine nine but you see it closed for six hundred and ten thousand so as opposed to the ninety seven thousand dollar home in Rochester right. they don't have that room to move oh, right okay so it's True. really dependent on the price range okay. Other big mistakes that buyers, or what should we be asking the realtor when we when we walk through an open house? What questions should we be asking? How can we see if you know the structure of the home is sound? What that's an inspection issue. But I always tell people as I walk through, they don't really have to ask me because I'm very straightforward, and they're like, "Wow, I um, this floor is sloping. Did you notice that?" We're asked to take shoes off. Well, that's a wonderful thing because I feel everything under my feet. And if the home is not built in 1920, 1930, say it's built in 1970, that's not a good sign. That's that's potentially foundation issue. So I have walked through homes like that. So that's something I can say that I don't need an inspector for. I can visually see it. I can feel it. And then I look for excess wear and tear. And we call that the tip of the iceberg. If you have not taken care of your property... And it's obvious to me. Then we also say, probably you haven't cleaned your furnace. You haven't had it inspected and checked. You haven't taken care of your roof. How do you know if there's mold in the attic? Hmm. Would you agree, James? I agree. The other thing that I always do is, um, you know, I and I think you both have seen me do it, is the railing test. Um, I like to take the railing and really, really oh. try to move it. Um, and, and I do that in James, one of these times you are going <laughs> to fall off the two story foyer. I know. I know. I, let's hope, let's hope it's never that loose, but do I, you tell the buyer, okay, just put your arms out. <laughs> Trust me. Trust me. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. I, I do tell them I'm about to do the railing test. Everybody wait. So I always do it. I do it as I walk up the stairs too. And I really like to feel the, the, if there's any give in that, in that railing. And part of the reason I do that is because. It's a safety thing, and if a buyer really had, or I'm sorry, a seller hasn't addressed that, and it's that loose, um, you know, then it starts to make me wonder what oh, other what things else? that they have exactly because the especially railings are especially in a two story foyer or a great room. Those are very. It's a safety thing, and mm-hmm. it, obviously they look nice too. But I like to look at the quality of the home too, and seeing that the other thing that I do is when I walk into the basement, finished or not, or sometimes it's a partial finish, is I always am smelling for moisture, and I'm looking at the foundational walls. And I don't ever deter a buyer if there's moisture on the foundation, if they really like the home. But I always tell them to make a note for their home inspector to really look at that and potentially do like a mold test or something like that. Because um, some of the most beautiful homes have very wet basements. Um, And sometimes that's just a creature of their lot that they sit on. And just sometimes it's just a simple grading issue outside. Um, But sometimes there really has been mold in some of those older homes um, that has been festering there for a while. And sometimes the sellers really don't even realize it. Some people don't use their basements. Um, 
you know, I can tell you even in my personal home, you know, my, my laundry room is on the first floor. I don't go into the basement. Um, too often, so um, I don't go into the basement to find my stuff in the kitchen. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> but your wreaths, so, it's exactly. there. Got the exactly. <laughs> you know, so it's one of those things. The other thing too is, is I do look. At, I just showed a home the other day that um, had really. Um, now that I think about it, it had three dehumidifiers in the basement, and it makes you kind of wonder. Um, you know, why is there three? One right. is one is not unusual. Or if um, you see the big commercial correct, grade dehumidifiers, exactly. like, why is yes, that here? Exactly. So, and it's something I told the buyers, I said, it's not something I would deter you or let deter you from buying this home, Just but I would aware, definitely make yeah. a note of that for your home inspector. Um, on that is to find out why maybe they just really don't want any humidity in this basement. Um, or maybe there's an underlying problem here, or maybe there might've been water in the basement at some point and they're trying to dry it out. So it just, it's one of those things. Those are the two things that I do. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for your great advice and uh, for being on the podcast this week. Thank thank you. you. We appreciate it. We actually took seven figures out on the street. We implemented some of this great advice from today. So the video, you can watch it. It's on rochesterbuzz.com. Click on Sandy's seal of approval. Go to seven figures. Or you can find it also on my personal Facebook page, Sandy Waters. But we went into a house that, James, you have on the market. And we went room by room. James, Susan, and also Tom Confer from Family First Credit Union talked us through how to renovate the house, how to stretch a $10,000 budget, where to put the money, and how to attract more buyers. So you can see that on rochesterbuzz.com. All right, switching gears next week, nationally known motivational speaker Janine Shepard will be on. I am so honored and grateful that she agreed to spend some time with us. Her story is truly amazing. In contention to win Australia's first ever medal, At the 1988 Winter Olympics, her career as an athlete was abruptly cut short after a life-threatening accident. She beat the odds and survived the accident, but doctors told her she would never walk again or have children. And yet again, she beat the odds. She taught herself how to walk. She is now a commercial pilot, aerobatics flight instructor, author of six best-selling books. She has her own TED Talk and mother of three. I cannot wait. It is going to be a great conversation. Hope you'll be here with us next week. In the meantime, have a great weekend. If you have a personal finance question or feedback about the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to Sandy at sandy at rochesterbuzz.com. New episode every Friday. Listen, subscribe, and tell a friend about the Seven Figures podcast. Smart money strategies for women.